morning, church. We're glad that you're here this morning. Hope you had a blessed Christmas and a great time with your family. Uh, it is family worship this morning, so our kids are with us. They get to hear the Word of God preached. And uh, one of the things that we want to do in 2020, we got a lot to do in 2020, but one of the things we want to do in 2020 is engage the kids during this family worship time. And uh, so we will uh, be doing that as we continue to move forward as a church. But there are some uh, engagement thing materials on the front pew. I be- believe they're on the back pew as well for children. But uh, we want our kids to be ready, as we do our adults, to be ready to hear the message of, from the Word of God. And so hopefully in the future you will be seeing Um, what the message is going to be for the next week, and we hope that you come prepared and ready to hear and listen to what God has to say according to his word. So our our, uh, promise is is that we will get it done early so that you can know what's going to be preached and what's going to be uh, taught, and then your, your promise back to us is to be ready to have read the passage, to look at it, to pray through it, and to be ready to hear it and listen to it and apply it to our lives. And so that's what we want to do, um, one of the things we want to do in 2020. But we're in our series, and we're ending our series here on the greatest gift. And uh, this morning, um, we get to look at the Old Testament one more time before we move back into Ephesians and we finish that, but uh, one more time in the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. I do. I really love the Old Testament because it points us to Christ. It points us to our need for the Savior. And if we have um, somehow lost that in this Christmas season, we get to see it one more time as we know our need for the Savior, but the whole Old Testament is filled with people who cannot keep the law of God and need the shepherd, the ruler, the king to come, the Savior to come to rescue God's people. And today, we... we, we it's, the Old Testament is full of prophecies. It's full of prophecies of how Jesus will come, born of a virgin, when he will come, what he will do when he comes. And today, we're going to look at where he will come from. In this series, we have looked at the reason for the season, the central figure of history, the reason we gather today as the church, Christ Himself, Emmanuel, God with us, the Lamb who was slain and is worthy of our worship. The Bible affirms Jesus as the Messiah, and it tells us the very place that he would be born. God speaks through a contemporary of Isaiah. We've spent a lot of time in Isaiah the last three weeks through a contemporary of Isaiah, Micah, the prophet in 8th century B.C., about where the king is coming from. And so the purpose of preaching this sermon today 
is to put on display the majesty and the glory of God and that we know his church would know that his plans will succeed. We're looking at the king's arrival to a small place overshadowed by the great city of Jerusalem, the king who is coming to Bethlehem. Micah 5.2, if you'll turn in your Bibles there. Micah, you probably haven't read that uh, recently in your quiet times, but um, it is a, a minor prophet, and you can turn in Micah 5.2. It may take you a while to get there. It's on page 779 in the Pew Bible in front of you. It is in the minor prophets, so it's near the end of the Old Testament. Um, before Habakkuk and Nahum and Zephaniah and Haggai and Malachi and Zechariah, you can stand in reading of God's word here as we read it together. We're just going to read Matthew, uh, Ma- Micah, not Matthew, Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your prophetic word that points us to the one who is coming. And we thank you, Father, that your sovereign plan was to send Jesus We thank you that you sent him to be born in a manger in a specific place at a specific time through a specific line. And that that king, Father, that was born to us would be the savior of the world. We thank you for that. And Father, when we look at the passages of Scripture, when we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we look at the Bible, may the Word of God fill our hearts so that we can be overjoyed by the presence of our God in knowing that this mighty God is worthy of worship, that Jesus is worthy of worship in our life. Lord, help us to understand that today. Help us to see that today that he is worthy of worship, that he is worthy to be adored, that he is worthy to be obeyed. And Father, we thank you that you have given us your word to show us that you are sovereign, that you have a plan, that your plan was Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We live in Oklahoma, so everybody in this room knows what the sound of the siren means, right? It's a warning, a declaration that there is a tornado on the ground. Every April to May, everyone gets their place ready. They get ready their closet or their bathroom or their hole in the ground or their cement block that they all gather with their family in. Whatever they got, they crawl in it. And I can remember moving for the first time to Oklahoma and about the fourth or the fifth grade, the siren went off. But guess what? We were prepared for the sirens to go off. I can remember in fourth grade them showing a video in Oregon, Portland, Oregon, about 
Tornado Alley, right? And them showing the houses being ripped off, the roofs being ripped off, and these tornadoes just pummeling everything in its path, and thinking to myself, that's where I'm going to live? And so we were prepared. We had food for weeks, rice and green beans and corn and peanut butter crackers, water for rations of 10 men, We had our football helmets on. I don't know if you remember these little plastic helmets, but we had these plastic helmets that me and my brother put on our heads and we got our mattresses from our bed and brought them to put over our head in the closet. The sirens were going off and it meant something was happening. You see, throughout the book of Micah, the prophet gives judgments on the people of Israel and Judah because of their wickedness, their corrupt leadership, and their idolatry. These warnings of judgment are to stir the hearts of the people back to their God, to wake them up from their slumber. These warnings are echoed from the prophet Micah like sirens getting people ready for the impending judgment. Yet amidst these warnings, God gives the people promises of hope. And verse 2 is one of those promises that God gives to show his grace and his mercy to a people that are undeserving of his love. It's a sign that the judgment is coming, but for those who hope in the one who is coming, there is a promise of peace. Look at verse 4 with me, and he shall stand, and this is talking about the one who is coming to Bethlehem, verse 4, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and beginning in verse 5, and he shall be their peace. He will be their peace. He will bring peace to all men because their sins will be forgiven. They will be declared righteous. The sirens are going off. Not only in the day of Micah, but their idolatry, their selfish desires, their replacement of God. But the sirens are going off today in our culture, in our city, in our community, in our church. Will your heart be stirred to move? The king is coming, and he's coming from Bethlehem. Will you come and worship him, the greatest gift? Micah, one of the minor prophets, um, 
that we don't normally read often. It's, it's not an easy read if you read the book of Micah. But Micah pre- presents this coming ruler against the backdrop of invasion of Judah by the Babylonians and Israel and Samaria by the Assyrians. The text was intended to bring comfort to the despairing covenant people of God. It tells about this great ruler who will shepherd God's people. At most times throughout this book, Micah the prophet is alternating between judgments of doom and promises of hope. And we look to the ultimate promise of hope, which is Christ, who is to come from Bethlehem. Verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. This is our first point this morning. The king is to be born in Bethlehem. The coming king is to be born in Bethlehem. You ask the question, why is this significant at all? Well, 700 years after Micah proclaimed this prophecy, Caesar Augustus makes a decree that the world should register in their hometown. Luke 2 tells us that Joseph left Nazareth with his pregnant fiancée and they made their trip down to Bethlehem. Why? Because Joseph was in the lineage of David who is from Bethlehem. God had a plan and his plan was Jesus. His plan was the Holy Spirit to come upon a young woman, a virgin Mary, who was engaged to be married to Joseph, who happened to be from the line of David and therefore must register at the time the baby was coming. And then a baby ended up being born in Bethlehem. The prophet Micah predicts that. God inspired Micah to write this 700 years before Christ was born. Next time we think there's an incident that God doesn't know about that happens to us in our life, We really need to think again. There are no accidents with God. He knows what's happening. He is in control. Yes, we live in a fallen world. Some of the consequences of sin raise their ugly head on a daily basis. But God is still in control of each and every situation that you walk through, that I walk through, in our life, in our community in our church, and in our world. It was prophesied multiple times that the Messiah would be born in the lineage of David. One prophecy was Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. It says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, one 
a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. One from David's branch who will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. You see, God's plan from the beginning was Jesus to save the world. The entire Bible points us to this moment which the coming Savior comes From the time of the fall, when sin entered into the world, the answer to life's questions was Jesus. Nothing else. Even the people of Jesus' time knew that the Messiah was to come from the line of David. They knew that he was to be born in Bethlehem. Some of the people in Bethlehem from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, questioned Jesus. And they said this in John chapter 7. It says, on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is a prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants? And from Bethlehem, the town where David lived, thus the people were divided because of Jesus. They all had the correct signs, and yet they missed the Savior. Have you ever known exactly where you're going, and yet for some reason you missed it? That's my wife. I do this all the time. I was driving to the church to work one time, as I do every day, and all of a sudden, I'm passing 23rd Street and exiting off of 10th Street. Not a good way to go. Not not any reason other than just a lack of focus. But I had just missed my turn that I take every single day to get to work. So interesting that some people can miss Jesus even when all the signs point to him. We know the story of the wise men who search for the king. They come to Jerusalem, the big city, expecting him to be there. And they say to Herod, the king there, where is he who is born born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. King Herod, who's caught off guard, says that he and all of Jerusalem were troubled about this. So what does he do? He assembles the chief priests and scribes of the people, those that know the word of God, who are supposed to be preaching the word of God, who understand the word of God. He, he, he gathers those who have knowledge of the word of God and he inquires of them, where is Christ to be born? Where is the Messiah to be born in the scripture? And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it's written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. 
quoting the prophet Micah. So the chief priests and the scribes, the ones who eventually will crucify Jesus on the cross, the same men are the ones that say, oh yeah, he will be born in Bethlehem. They see the sign. They understand the prophecy. Even Herod believes that Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. We know this because he ends up taking out the little babies born there. And yet they miss him. They miss the king. Church, don't miss the one who can save us from our sins. You may be here this morning because your parents or your spouse dragged you to church or you've come because it's the Christmas season and you're with your family. But don't miss what Jesus wants to do in your life. Find him. See him as who he is. Christ the Lord. The scripture says, knock and the door will be opened to you. Jesus wants to come and change your life. But you have to be willing to let him in. This Christmas, don't miss the Savior of the world, the one who came to die for you. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. The Ephrata there after Bethlehem has significance because it tells us that it was the Bethlehem in Judah to the south. There are two Bethlehems, one in the north and one in the south. It's like having Miami, or Miami, Oklahoma, right? And Miami, Florida, right? The Ephrata tells us that it was like the Miami, Oklahoma. It was the small town to the south. The verse says, those who are too little, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, This is our second point this morning. God uses the small things to show his power. God uses the small things to show his power. When Jesus was born there in the New New Testament times, Bethlehem was really just a village. It lay near the north-south highway connecting Jerusalem with Hebron to the south. God chooses this small nothing of a town to bring about the blessing of the Savior. They're not large enough to be, the clan, be of the clans of Judah, and yet God has big plans for them to be used by God in a mighty way. John Piper says this about this passage, the deepest meaning 
of the littleness and insignificance of Bethlehem is that God does not bestow the blessings of the Messiah, the blessings of salvation on the basis of our greatness or our merit or our achievement. He does not elect cities or people because of their prominence or their grandeur or their distinction. When he chooses, he chooses freely in order to magnify the glory of his own mercy, not the glory of our distinctions. So let us say with the angels, glory to God in the highest, not glory to us. We get the joy, he gets the glory, end quote, by Piper. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God is not impressed at your strength or how good you are at something, how rich you are, or how much power you have. He desires people that are yielded to him to say, Lord, where do you want me? Lord, use me in a place that I can bring glory to your name. Trust me, he will. Can I just say this for a minute? For the past 11 years of my life, dedicated my life to vocational ministry. That means I get paid to be a pastor or a missionary. Two years as a missionary, seminary for three years, pastoring five years in church revitalization in Holdenville, America, and serving a little over a year here. Recently, I've come back to the city, come back to my roots here in Oklahoma, and become reacquainted with all my buddies from high school and college. And sometimes I go over to their house. I see their cars, see their clothing. A good few of them are millionaires now, about 12 years later. And think to myself, from a worldly perspective, I don't really have that much to offer. And yet there's a stirring deep, deep down in my soul that says the same spirit that resurrected Christ from the grave is the same spirit that lives inside of me. And he is going to do something great in and through me. We see this principle of God using the smallest things to show his glory throughout the Bible. You see David, who they don't even bring to Samuel when they're choosing a king. David and Samuel says, these aren't the ones that God has chosen. Oh, you want that guy, the red-headed guy out there that's keeping the sheep? That's the one. The parable of the mustard seed, smallest seed, yet creates a tree. The parable of the 
God choosing, Jesus choosing fishermen, uneducated men, to be his disciples, to carry the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he takes the one who betrayed him three times, Peter, to be the leader of that early church. He chooses small children to speak the truths of the gospel. He's taken you and me to be used by God in ways that are unimaginable. He's taken this church of Northwest Baptist to be a beacon of light, not only to this community, but throughout the world. So next time we say, well, I'm too small to be used by God, let us remember God uses the small things to show his power. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. We see in the parallels here with David, who was a shadow of the Messiah to come, born in Bethlehem, ruler in the house of Israel, shepherd of the people of God. And yet Jesus is the ultimate pro fulfillment of the prophecy of David written, to, written in 2 Samuel 7, 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It's fulfilled in Christ. The coming king is to be born in Bethlehem. God uses the small things to show his power. And the last part, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days, is our last point this morning. The coming king is eternal. In fact, the word there, from old, is often synonymous with eternal. Habakkuk 1.12, it's translated that way. Kedem is the Hebrew word here for olden days. And it's translated everlasting in multiple areas of the Bible. Forever, everlasting, eternal. This is a clear prophecy that the coming king would be from the Lord. Only the Jewish Messiah could be the ruler of Israel from eternity past. And you look at the Bible, you look at John and his writings, John 1.1, 1, 1, it says this, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among men. This is why we have the word Trinity, which is the term used for the triune God. God is one God in three eternal coexistent persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The scripture is clear that God is one. He, Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
But Jesus is eternal, and Jesus is God. That's why we have the triune God. Colossians 1.16 tells that Jesus is eternal. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is active in the creation process. He is eternal, coexistent person of the Trinity. This coming king is no ordinary person. This coming king is not to be treated as such either. My job in preaching the word of God is not to entertain, not to give you a to-do list, but to highlight Christ for who he is so that you may worship him. And out of the love that you have for him, for who he is, you desire to obey the word of God. Worship of Jesus as the ruler from ancient of days means you've heard the judgment is coming. You've heard the sirens going off. You're willing to submit your life to Christ as Lord and Savior. So two things. Don't miss him. All the signs point to him. Don't miss the opportunity to live for the one who is worthy. And the second thing is God's plan from the beginning was Christ. God is sovereign. He is trustworthy. Have you surrendered your life to him? Some people in Oklahoma, after being here a while now, some people in Oklahoma hear the tornado siren and laugh, right? They step outside and look to see where the tornado is. They look and say, oh, it's over there, it's over here. They don't take refuge and dwell in safety. The problem is that the judgment of God is coming upon mankind. And God has provided the ruler from Bethlehem who has come from the ancient of days to shepherd his flock to bring safety and security for those who have come into his flock. Will you join and go through the gate who is Christ? In 2019, we began with this sermon 2 Chronicles 7.14, 
We talked about seeking the face of God. Seeking the face of the Lord. We end with the same same call. To seek the face of God. To worship him as who he is. To block out all the distractions, all the mess. And say, I want to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And my life is to be a life of worship. Because he is worthy. He is worthy of worship. He is worthy of love. He is worthy of adoration. He is worthy of obedience. And when we understand that, God begins to move. God begins to show himself. Let us seek the face of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that you are worthy of our praise, of our honor, of our glory. Father, like the people of Israel, sometimes we are distracted. Idols, greed, self-centeredness. We forget who you are. We forget what you're doing. We forget that you have a plan and it's for your glory. Lord, help us to not forget that you are working, you are moving, you have given us hope that is unimaginable through Christ the King. Father, turn our hearts back to you. Turn our hearts away from the world, the things in the world, and help us to see Christ for who he is. The Lord God Almighty, who humbled himself, becoming a baby in Bethlehem. Father, we thank you for 2019. Thank you for all the hurts, all the pains, all the celebrations, all the praises. Father, we look to 2020. Our eyes are fixed on you. For we know that you have great plans for your glory, not for ours. We anticipate, Father, to see your presence. We anticipate 
see you move. Father, help us to be people who see who you are. We want to see you. Thank you.